So uh, welcome and thank you for being here for this uh, first week in our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Uh, my name is Micah Childs, and I'm teaching today, but we have 13 weeks to go through. And I'm not teaching all of that. Uh, Michael Neal. Michael, can you raise your hand? Michael will be also teaching, and uh, we look forward to it, and we thank Nick for uh, asking us and entrusting us to, to go through uh, these first 11 chapters of Genesis. <clears throat> okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see beautiful and wonderful uh, realities in the book of Genesis and in all of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today, this is just an introduction to the book of Genesis, and more specifically, an introduction to Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, I want to talk about, for a few minutes, the class outline. So we have 13 weeks. I'm going to read, and then I'll send it to you this afternoon or, uh, or tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm going to read what the kind of the the way it's going to be broken up uh, again with the reservation that we can change it later on, uh, but we'll we'll communicate that if we do, and we want to do that so you can be thinking ahead. You can uh, uh, obviously be reading the text uh, when we're when we're actually going through the the different sections uh, of Genesis one through eleven, but we're also covering different topics. Um, so if you have thoughts or want to kind of think about the topics as we come to them, and you can, uh, uh, you can bring questions that Michael and I don't know how to answer, uh, <laughs> bring it. Uh, so the class outline, then I'm going to talk a little bit about Genesis 1 through 11, just an outline of what uh, the, 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 uh, God is, is, is telling us in Genesis 1 through 11. Not overly complicated, but we'll just we'll lay it out there. Uh, the next part is about authorship of Genesis, or more specifically, the Pentateuch. Uh, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, of course, these are the, the absolute holiest of holy books for uh, our Jewish friends. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. That might, might be the longest section. Uh, it, anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, the next one, we'll talk a little bit about creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. This is sort of a, a, a way to read uh, the Bible or to think about history. Um, then I want to talk about two foundational realities that we get immediately in the book of Genesis. This is all introduction, so we're gonna, I'm going to zip through this stuff pretty quickly. Um, two foundational realities... And then I'm going to talk for a few minutes about how to read the Old Testament. Nothing uh, too crazy, uh, nothing too specific, but just as we read the Old Testament, how should we be thinking um, uh, as Christians when we read the Old Testament? All right, first, class outline. What, or excuse me, when, what, and, and who? So what that means is what is the date, what are we talking about, and who's doing the teaching? You'll see when I send it to you uh, later this afternoon. So today we're talking about the introduction, uh, the book of beginnings, and of course that's me. Uh, next, week, uh, the, uh, next week, Michael will be talking about creation from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the following week, Michael will be talking about sin, that's Genesis 3 and 4. 
the fourth uh, week, Michael, Michael's got three weeks in a row. Michael will again be teaching, and this will be on a topic on the image of God, human beings being made in the image of God. This is so, so vastly important. As a matter of fact, it's one of our foundational realities we'll talk about in just a second. But Michael will talk about the image of God uh, much more. All right, February 23rd, I'll be back, and I will be teaching on men, women, and marriage. Uh, so uh, that'll be um, exciting. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've been married for uh, almost 22 years now, so hopefully I can say something from Genesis and from experience. Um, on March 8th, Michael will be back. He'll be talking about, again, another topical Sunday, salvation and sacraments from uh, Genesis. Uh, on the 15th, I'll be teaching, uh, March 15th, I'll be teaching on uh, Genesis 5 through 9.17. That's the, the, the narrative or the story of Noah. So we'll be covering a lot of ground just talking uh, about Noah. Uh, March 22nd, ah, I'll be teaching again, and this one will be really spicy. Uh, who wants to talk about sex from the book of Genesis? The book of Genesis, I mean, if you read the book of Genesis with an eye to sexual relationships, it's all over the place, and it runs the board. If you made a movie, like a detailed movie, the book of Genesis, none of us would feel appropriate to watch it. Um, so... <laughs> There's a lot said about, about, uh, about sex in the book of Genesis. So that's a topical study, and it, it'll be appropriate. I don't, I don't mean that. But it is important that we uh, talk about what God talks about. Uh, April 19th, uh, we're going to talk, uh, Michael's going to get the joy of talking about what's up with these genealogies. <laughs> so when you, if you ever have tried to read through the Bible, you, you probably uh, got, well, you know, in Genesis 1 through 11, there's a number of these genealogies, these listings of so-and-so's the father of so-and-so and so-and-so the father of so-and-so and, and that sort of thing. But it's all throughout the Bible. And um, it's a big deal to God that, that he relates to us uh, through lineage of people. Now, we'll talk about uh, just briefly a second today about why that's important, but Michael gets to talk for 45 minutes about why that's important. If you really start studying it, it's, it's easy to fill up that time. But when you're reading through the Bible and you get to the, I don't know, the book of Numbers and you're reading all these genealogies, you're like, oh my word, what am I doing here? And you just quit. That's why most of us never get through the, reading the Bible. Um, so the, uh, April, some of y'all do, and thank God for that. Uh, April 26th, uh, we'll be talking about the Tower of Babel, uh, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that's me. Uh, May 3rd, we're really far out now, this is the 11th week, is history possible? Uh, this will be talking about the historicity of the book of Genesis. You know, uh, there's a lot of theological history. There's a lot of, obviously, uh, actual history as Christians. Uh, one thing that really separates uh, Christianity from other religions is that we are not only uh, a, um, a religion of, of ideas and theology and concepts. We're also a religion of history. Like, the resurrection really happened. And if it didn't really happen... All that theology doesn't matter. So uh, in, in, in many religions, it's ideas and concepts and philosophies that are the basis of the religion. Actually, historical realities is the basis of, uh, of, of Christianity. So we'll talk about some about that. Again, that's a topical study. Um, May 10th, I'll be talking about creation and recreation. There's a lot about Genesis and Revelation. 
coming together. Remember, we, uh, we'll talk just a minute about uh, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. So if you put recreation or creation and recreation together, uh, that'll be a beautiful biblical theology, I think, as long as I do a good job. Uh, the Bible's full of it. And then on May 17th, uh, Jesus in Genesis. So some of the topics will overlap, but that's okay because it's good to hear things more than once. It's okay because not everybody will be here every time. Uh, and it's okay because the Bible's about Jesus. So, you know, that's, that's what it's about. All right, so that's our class outline. Again, I'll send that out to the people who, who text me email addresses. Um, let's talk a minute about the outline. If you, uh, you, you can get out your Bible if you'd like to, uh, but just very, very briefly, Genesis 1 through 11, an outline. The first two chapters of Genesis, this book of beginnings, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The first two chapters recount re, re, uh, the uh, creation of the universe, of the world, of all the animals, um, of uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, and of course the pinnacle of creation, uh, humans uh, made in the image of God, male and female. So Genesis 1 and 2 is about this creative act of our sovereign and all-powerful God. Um, secondly, Genesis 3 and 4, we have the entrance of sin, rebellion against God. There's a lot of different ways. We'll talk about this in depth. Michael will when we talk about what does sin mean, how did it come into the world. Uh, <clears throat> but it's a rebellion against God, and it's specifically in Genesis 3, it's, it's not trusting in the words that God has given us. Remember when the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say, you know, so uh, planted this sort of seed um, and Eve's mind and she and Adam went with it and sin entered the world. When they um, took that fruit and ate it, they were not supposed to. But immediately in chapter four, you just, this is amazing. You have sin and then murder, like, (laughs) Like there's not like, can we like have, you know, sin into the world in a white lie or cheating on your taxes or, you know, something like that. No, we have like sin enters the world and Cain slaughters Abel. So, I mean, it's just like, boom, immediately. And in, in a real sense, um, I mean, in, you can't, there's not categories of sin when you think about it before a holy God. But there are absolutely categories of sin in the way it affects us horizontally. Some sins have farther outreaches than others. And mur- it just doesn't, it, murder. I mean, I, 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 we're not here to talk about, you know, ranking them. But what, what is worse, actually? And, um, and ultimately, murdering someone is murdering someone made in the image of God. It's a desecration of the image of God. So, uh, yeah, we wasted no time. Sin, murder, immediately. Uh, Genesis 5 through 10, we have the story of Noah, and this is so important. There's so many concepts in this uh, narrative of Noah. Um, You know, sin is now playing its role. Uh, We have... uh, judgment is coming. We have an act of mercy and grace. We have God calling a people, specifically Noah and his family. I mean, there's, there's just so much here. We have a, 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 a symbol of, of redemption and promise in the rainbow. 
There's just so much in the story of Noah that we'll get to later uh, in our study. That's it, the third part, Genesis 5 through 10. The, the, the fourth section in our outline is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. It's the Tower of Babel. And this is, uh, in one sense, it's, it's really short. It's only nine verses, but it has huge far-reaching uh, outworkings in the way our world works today, uh, in the way uh, judgment is um, meted out horizontally and how it creates separation between peoples. Uh, and it's so, so devastating. Um, but just a, a teaser, if you think about the, the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, you have the Tower of Babel where the languages are confused at the day of Pentecost. They begin to hear one another uh, when they're speaking their language, they begin to understand one another. So you can already see this idea of, of, of judgment and then this idea of redemption. It's God is always working and connecting the Bible together to see these beautiful patterns of, of judgment and redemption. Um, uh, that's something that Michael and I want to tease out as, as much as possible. And then the fifth part, Genesis uh, 11, um, 10 through the end of the chapter, we're getting ready for Abraham. And Abraham uh, kind of absolutely shoots us off into the story of God's uh, rescue plan. Uh, if you've ever read um, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, she talks about the, God's rescue plan. And, and when we get to uh, Abraham and getting ready for Abraham, we, we begin to see that really uh, coming into view what God is doing to rescue his people. Creation. 1 and 2, enter sin and murder, Genesis 3 and 4. The story of Noah, Genesis 5 through 10. Um, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel. And then Genesis 11 through the end of the chapter, 10 through the end of the chapter, is getting ready for Abraham. Um, all right. <clears throat> uh, let me, let me, so I'm going to show you two books that have helped me this week. I've got, I've got a lot of books that I'm, I'm going through to help me, um, obviously reading the text, but God has given a lot of teachers in his church and that are a lot smarter than me, who also have the Holy Spirit, by the way, so I can learn from their Holy Spirit, uh, prayerful study of God's Word. This is an introduction to the Old Testament by Raymond Dillard and Tremper Longman. Uh, it's a very helpful introduction. And this is another one by Tremper Longman. Uh, how to Read Genesis, which is also, I, I mean, I'll, I'll bring different books every time I teach, and I, I don't know, I'm not going to speak for Michael, but I will introduce these and say, hey, this is what helped me this week, um, and this is what helped me think through what I talked about this week. So I won't bring the same ones every week. I'll bring different ones, and if you would like a list of those, I can provide that. I know Michael has a list too, uh, but we'll be happy to talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about the Authorship of Genesis. Uh, Longman here in this How to Read the Book of Genesis begins by saying Genesis is technically an anonymous book. That is, it nowhere names its author. The book of Genesis nowhere says so-and-so wrote the book of Genesis. Now, most people uh, who have studied the Bible in depth, see actually, and the Jews uh, are on the same page with this as, as Christian scholars, they actually see uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a, as a set. It's called the Pentateuch. They basically go together, and, um, <clears throat> and that's, just, that's 
that's just assumed uh, basically by everyone. So whoever wrote or compiled the book of Genesis seemingly wrote and compiled all of the Pentateuch. And, um, but it is true, Genesis is technically an anonymous book. That is, it nowhere names its author. After saying that, the history of the church uh, and the history of most Jewish scholarship uh, up until the last 150 years or so, which I'm not going to get into that, about why things vastly changed in the last 150 to 200 years uh, in scholarship. But basically everyone in the church and everyone in the the Jewish scholars believe that Moses uh, is the author of the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. There are... um, there are evidence for Moses as the author of Genesis inside the Pentateuch, meaning like there's uh, references. Uh, let me see if I can let me see if I can put this together here. There, there's, it was just it was overwhelming to me. It was it was a lot. Um, there were there were certain things. On occasion, we read that Moses wrote down certain historical events, and I'm just going to read these references, like Exodus 17:14. Numbers 33, 2, Moses uh, explicitly wrote down laws in Exodus 24, 4 and 34, 27. He also wrote a song in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 22. So while this doesn't prove that Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch, it, it does say very clearly that Moses did this, this section. He did this. So that's one piece of evidence about Moses, Mo, uh, the Mosaic authorship of, of the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. I've already stated that Jewish and Christian history has just assumed Mosaic. I, I don't mean 100% of everyone, but almost all Christians and basically all Jewish scholars up to the last 150 years have assumed that Moses uh, is the author of Genesis. Now, uh, a, lot of, a lot of scholars... Uh, don't accept and read the Bible as being inspired by God. Now, we're Christians, and we come with different assumptions. Now, there are obviously some scholars that are Christians, so I'm I'm not trying to to make a huge blanket statement. But here in the church, uh, we believe as Christians that the Bible is inspired by God and, and given by inspiration. And we take very seriously the words of Jesus. And Jesus says... Look up. Jesus says in a few different places, uh, Matthew 19, 7, Jesus nowhere says, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So don't, he didn't say that. But he did say a number of things like this. Uh, this is when he's teaching about divorce in Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send them away? And Jesus replied, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So obviously we're not talking about marriage and divorce and adultery here. But what the point is, is that the Jewish scholars that were trying to debate Jesus was assuming that Moses wrote this. And they quoted from the Pentateuch. And Jesus just went with the assumption. He didn't challenge it. He didn't say, hey, you got that wrong. You know, uh, Jeremiah, later on, he, they, he actually, no, Jesus just went with it. And there are many other examples like that. Uh, Mark 22, uh, 24. 
<clears throat> the same day the Sadducees came to him uh, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies bearing no children, his brother must marry him, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know not neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So again, you have here Jesus dialoguing with the Sadducees, sometimes the Pharisees, sometimes the Sadducees. All these were uh, first century Jewish scholars. Um, and he just went with the assumption that Moses uh, is, the, uh, is the, um, the author of the book of Genesis. Or at least the one who's responsible for the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. There's also Mark 7.10, Mark 12.26, John 1.17, uh, and John 5.46, John 7.23. All these are similar references throughout the Gospels where Jesus assumes that Moses is responsible for Genesis. <coughs> now, there are a few problems uh, with the idea that Moses is the sole author of Genesis. Uh, there's a few things that are written in the Pentateuch, and uh, a couple of them in Genesis specifically, that, um, that Moses, um, Moses could not have known. Now, obviously, he could have known through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not, don't hear me saying that God couldn't have known. But what I'm saying is, if Mo, when Moses was writing it down, there are certain things that he wrote, he wrote, that he could not have known because they, ha they hadn't happened yet. And we don't read Genesis as a book of prophecy, like this is going to happen. He, he was writing a... Look, I'll give you an example. In Genesis 11, uh, where it talks about uh, uh, Abraham's uh, father, Terah, coming from the Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? Well, the Chaldeans, there were a number of Urs in the ancient, near, ancient uh, Middle East. And the Ur of the Chaldeans was a specific one, but the Chaldeans didn't exist... Till much later. So the, whoever edited Moses, whatever, whoever put, compiled this at this time was, was writing it in such a way so that the readers would know which Ur they were talking about, but that Ur of the Chaldeans didn't exist when, that was act, when Terah was actually leaving the Ur of the Chaldeans. Does that make sense? So, uh, that, again, I'm not... Don't hear me arguing against the authorship of Moses. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying when we read the Bible, we need to, be, we need to say, all right, well, what does that mean? That, that, that's not a natural reading of the text. Another example is in Genesis 14, verse 14, uh, the, uh, the, the city of Dan is mentioned. Well, uh, Dan didn't exist when Genesis 14 was happening. It was actually, it did, I take that back. It did exist as a community. It was named something else. I can't remember. Laish. Laish, exactly. Thank you. In Numbers 12, verse 3, again, this is the Pentateuch, Moses is mentioned as the most humble man or most meek man on the face of the earth. Now, that'd be a contradiction if Moses wrote that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. So, I doubt that he did that. Um, that was probably someone who was going through what Moses had compiled and said, hey, this, this would be a good example of, of what Moses was like. Um, you also have in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the death of Moses. Now, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Moses could have written a detailed description of his death before he died. 
but, you know, there's, there's nothing that's questioning the authority of the Bible to say that someone else wrote that after he died. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a questioning of, of, the, uh, of the authority of the Bible. So, you have some complications here. Uh, nothing that uh, makes us question uh, the Bible, especially, again, nowhere does Genesis say that Moses wrote it, and nowhere does Jesus say Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He seemed to assume it, which is a very, very powerful argument, by the way. A conclusion. Moses received divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit to write parts and to edit sources so that he is responsible for the Pentateuch beginning with the book of Genesis. So I want to say he's responsible for the Pentateuch. Number two. Moses used sources that he compiled. So Moses did live later, much later, than these uh, things, especially that happened in the book of Genesis. Obviously, he was born in the book of Exodus, uh, but he was not even alive in Genesis. So he used, through again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sources, either oral sources or written down sources, to help write the book of Genesis. So he used sources that he compiled. Number three, there seems to be some editorial work done after Moses died, especially an example of his death. Um, But there's a couple of quotes here. This is from, the first one is from Dillard and Longman. It says, in any case, our concern is the final form of the text, since that is what God has given the church as canon for its edification. Meaning, we can talk about all this, But what we have is the text that God wants us to have. And it's what we have in the Bible. Another quote that says something simpler to the end, this is Longman in the other book. But when it comes down to it, it is both impossible and unnecessary to differentiate mosaic and non-mosaic material in any detail. It is impossible because the text isn't interested in signaling to the reader in every case who might be responsible for what. And it is unnecessary because in the final analysis, the authority of the text is located not in Moses, but in God. So my personal belief is, is that Moses uh, is responsible for the Pentateuch. And at the end of the day, I believe that because the vast majority, the vast 99.9% of the church and Jewish scholars have believed that, and Jesus assumed it. That's where I'm at. That doesn't mean I have all the answers. That's, that's where I'm at, though, with the authorship of Genesis. Any questions? Oh, gosh. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, after the Enlightenment, you had... This is... I can't... Um, so, so, you have a lot of people assuming... Uh, not assuming divine inspiration. So, what they do is start looking at the text... To, to see what's behind the curtain, so to speak. So what they, it's called a doc, documentary hypothesis, and they divide it up and say this source contributed this part to the Pentateuch, this source contributed this part, this source contributed this part. And so uh, all that wasn't compiled till thousands of years after uh, Moses lived. He really had nothing to do with it except for maybe a certain section of it. Uh, it, uh, it assumes all sorts of contradictions and in historical inaccuracies, 
And, uh, but this comes from a certain mindset, from the en en Enlightenment. There's much good that came from the Enlightenment, but the Enlightenment also had a presupposition of, um, of, of a secular thinking without God, uh, which... Uh, Anti-supernatural. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. It's anti-supernatural. Yeah, it's naturalism. So if you have this naturalistic methodology, you're going to come to different conclusions. And so much of scholarship over the last 150, 200 years has been taken up with that. All right, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. You can think about history, and you can think about the Bible in these four categories. I'm going to read here just this one paragraph. The Bible may be described as a four-part symphony, moving from creation to the fall, then on to redemption, and finally recreation. The book of Genesis lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible by narrating briefly the first two movements, creation and fall. Those are the first two movements. And, uh, and Genesis lays the foundation for those. <clears throat> and also begins the third of the, of the three movements, redemption. The fourth movement is the subject of the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. We'll talk about at the end of the 13 weeks. But it is interesting to note the pervasive creation imagery in those chapters. So if you go read the book of Revelation, the last few chapters, you'll see a lot of creation imagery that you immediately saw in the book of Genesis. You know, this is uh, incredible to think about. The end of history is like the beginning in that it is a harmonious and wonderful relationship with God that has been reestablished. I think that's all I want to say about that because we're going to, this is what, in many ways, that's what this whole 13 weeks is going to be about creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. But just think about the book of Genesis, especially 1 through 11, laying the foundation for the first two, absolutely laying the foundation for creation <coughs> and fall or sin, giving us a teaser, beginning the third, redemption. In Genesis 3 15, um, uh, when, when God is talking to the serpent, he says that, uh, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then later in, the, in Genesis 3, it says when, when God, uh, after God gave the curse uh, for the sin that had entered the world, uh, he made fig leaves to cover Adam and Eve because they were naked and ashamed. There's a lot of shame. There's not just guilt. There's a lot of shame that comes into the world with this act of rebellion and sin. And it touches us, obviously, to this day. Um, but you have here crushing the head of the serpent. You, that is a, a beautiful uh, kind of prophecy of what's going to happen because the seed of Eve will ultimately be Jesus Christ. And, of course, this plays into why the genealogies are so important because you can actually trace all the way from Eve to the coming of Jesus um, uh, through the genealogy. So... Um, uh, and then, of course, in Genesis 3, you have this beginning with the covering, their covering, and that represents the righteousness of Christ that covers our guilt and shame. So you have the beginning of redemption. Okay, real quickly. Man, we, this is... Uh, I'm glad we have 13 weeks. Two foundational realities from these, from these first 11 chapters. The first is 
that God and creation are separate and distinct. This is so foundational to um, correct, correct theology, uh, to the history of Christian thinking, to the reality of the way God created the world. Um, there was a, a famous um, 20th century uh, Christian apologist and philosopher named Cornelius Van Til, who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. And in his, his uh, Christian philosophy class, uh, the first thing he would do is he would write, I, I was in his class, so this is what I heard. He would write two circles on the, on the chalkboard. And he would put God in one and creation in the other. And his whole idea is this all begins with the idea that God and, and creation are separate. Now, you can think of many, many, many false religions, false teachings that say that, that God and creation are the same. Or that, uh, that, that God is within all of us. Or that God is in the rocks. or God, you know, But it is fundamental reality... And it's so, um, it, it cannot be, uh, this point cannot be given up. God and creation are separate and distinct. Now, to say it so bluntly seems sort of a, I don't know, like deistic feeling, like God created and just kind of left us alone, or, or ooh, that's kind of, it's kind of lonely feeling to be in the universe that, that we're so distinct. Well, <clears throat> To overcome this, we have the miracle of the Incarnation. The Incarnation, the coming of God to become a human uh, little boy, I think may be the greatest miracle that's ever happened. Because you have God who is completely distinct, totally other, transcendent, uh, infinite, coming to be part of creation as a created human being. This is the miracle in the, of the Incarnation. This is why the early church, this was, this and the Trinity were the two main questions of the early church. They talked about this for centuries. How do we understand the reality that God became a person? In John 1.14 we have, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. And if you read that whole chapter, it would be clear that the Word here is Jesus. The second foundational reality is that human beings, both male and female, are unique in God's creation. They're made in the image of God. Nothing else in all creation is said to be made in the image of God. And human beings are also being made in the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation. <coughs> In Genesis 1, 26-31, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh, oh, excuse me, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have it for food and every beast of the earth 
And to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Only time that God says it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Human beings are absolutely unique, um, made in the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation. And on these two realities hang all that is precious to us as Christians, and honestly, much that is precious to us in Western civilization. Now, don't hear me saying Christianity and Western civilization are the same thing, because I don't think they are. But so much of Western civilization has been built on these two fundamental realities. Um, God as separate, creator, and lawgiver. The idea of right and wrong in morality comes from this idea that God is other than us. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, go look at book one, where he talks about um, how everyone has a sense of law, of right and wrong. And where does that come from? And that's so foundational to our legal system, uh, just, it's, it's part of our conscience. I mean, it's there, and that's kind of Lewis's point. Uh, but this is built on the reality that God and creation are separate. The concept of justice. God is not uh, part of this problem we've got going on here. He's outside of the problem. And he speaks words of justice and speaks words of mercy into that problem called sin. How about the image of God? The individual is the foundational unit of society. We stand before God, we stand before society, and we stand before the government as individuals that has rights and responsibilities. This all flows from the idea of the image of God. I'm convinced of that. I know there are other streams that brought in the idea of uh, the individual as being the sovereign uh, in our society and uh, we, we stand before the government as individual. I know that there are other enlightenment streams that talked about some of that. You have Hume and other philosophers. But ultimately, it's all founded on this idea that we are made in the image of God. The idea of human dignity. There is, there is no ultimate way to argue for human dignity if you don't have image of God in the background. Freedom of conscience, all based on this idea of the image of God. The idea of free speech. There's a fascinating lecture. Now, when I, when I say people or books, I'm not uh, advocating everything that's said, okay? But there's a fascinating rec- lecture by Jordan Peterson where he totally uh, brings the idea of free speech in what he says into the largest possible historical category possible, and he develops it all the way down to the idea of image of God. And he makes a link from the idea of free speech down to human beings being made in the image of God. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how to read the Old Testament. Maybe I can uh, send out that outline through uh, through the email. I'm really honored that y'all would sit and listen to me. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for your care for us. Uh, Thank you for the reality um, of Jesus Christ even shown to us uh, from the earliest pages of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.